it's Scarlett again. Welcome back to the Retro Cinema Review Podcast, uh, the podcast where we rewatch and review older television and movies, uh, and sometimes with a snarky commentary. Uh, this time we are rewatching Baby Boom. Um, I must admit, this is one of my favorite movies. I watched it over and over again when I was younger. Um, most. Mostly I watched it because I love the female lead. Um, the main character, J.C. Wyatt, is played by Diane Keaton. Um, I understand, I think she's a little problematic with her defending of Woody Allen. But that aside, I do love her. She's one of my favorite actresses. She's quirky. She's different. And I think this is the movie that really introduced me to Diane Keaton, and I have loved her as an actress ever since. And just as a side note, you really, if you are not already, should be following her on Instagram. She takes some great pictures. She's very quirky in the way that she dresses. She takes a lot of clothing pictures and just kind of like life as she sees it. It's really interesting. Another interesting thing about Diane Keaton, if you watch all of her movies, you know, Father of the Bride, Baby Boom, whatever, um, you'll notice the way that she dresses is sometimes a little different. It's kind of consistent across the board. She has it written in all of her contracts. I have uh, read that she gets to choose all of the clothing that she wears in her movies. So she gets first and last say on everything. So everything is always her style, which explains why sometimes it's a little quirky. I love it. Um, just as an aside, we will definitely be reviewing the first Wives Club here soon, because that's another fabulous movie. So, Baby Boom was originally released October 30th of 1987. Um, as I said, starring Diane Keaton as J.C. Wyatt. When the movie was originally released in theaters, one of the taglines was J.C. Wyatt, corporate powerhouse, just received an inheritance, and it sucks. So the synopsis of the movie is J.C. is a high-powered, career-minded woman. She has no thoughts of becoming a wife or mother. She's literally married to her career. But there is a hiccup in her plans, and everything changes when her cousin passes away, and she finds out that she has inherited and must raise his daughter, Elizabeth. Um, the question, though, is, will she continue the grueling hours as a career woman, or will she put Elizabeth up for adoption? So the movie opens on the kind of standard New York City skyline scene, morning rush hour, everybody's rushing to work, you know, too busy for anything. Um, Everybody has a briefcase, of course. And the one thing I noticed, for an extremely feminist movie, I don't see one pantsuit on any women in this movie. <laughs> JC, every time she's dressed for work, you will see her wearing a skirt suit. So a suit jacket with a skirt and heels. Sometime, somehow I don't think that in 2019, J.C. is still wearing skirt suits. But I digress. So we hear a female voice who is actually Linda Ellerby, whom some of you may remember as the producer of Nick News on Nickelodeon. Remember News for Kids? Yeah, that's her. So she's doing a voiceover as we're watching the street scene, everybody rushing to work, to which she says, quote, 
53% of the American workforce is female. Three generations have turned 1,000 years of tradition on its ear. As little girls, they were told to grow up and marry doctors and lawyers. Instead, they grew up and became doctors and lawyers. They moved out of the pink ghetto and into the executive suite. Sociologists say the new working woman is a phenomenon of our time. We are then introduced to our main character, played by none other than Diane Keaton. Linda Ellerby goes on to say, quote, take J.C. Wyatt, for example. She graduated first in her class at Yale, got her MBA from Harvard, has a corner office at the corner of 58th and Park. She works five to nine. She makes six figures a year, and they call her the Tiger Lady. Married to her job, she lives with an investment banker who is married to his. They collect African art, co-own their co-op, and have separate but equal IRA accounts. One would take it for granted that a woman like this has it all. One must never take anything for granted. Can I say that is one of my favorite voiceover jumping into a movie I think I have ever seen? Sorry, I gush about this movie a lot. We then join JC in the office explaining aspects of business to a junior named Ken. You can see Ken is young. He kind of looks like he just graduated from college, maybe yesterday, last week at the most. Um, after a hectic day at the office, we then see JC out to dinner with her boss. I had to laugh here because for a movie made in 1987, for dinner, JC has lime grilled free range chicken with pumpkin pasta and dandelion greens. That sounds suspiciously like something I would have ordered in 2018 or even 2019. <laughs> Everything old is new again, huh? So over dinner, Fritz, her boss, asks her to become a partner in the firm and warns her that her 70 to 80 hours a week she currently works will only increase. He then asks if she will ever marry her partner and warns her that he spends no time with his family. He says, quote, a man can be success and still have a full personal life. My wife is there for me whenever I need her. She raises the kids. She decorates. I don't know what else she does, but she takes care of things. He tells her that women cannot have it all, career and family. And JC assures him she doesn't want it all. Okay, Fritz. Um, this... This is, <laughs> this is where things get interesting because that was 1987. That was 32 years ago. Obviously, things have changed. Um, I don't see why men are capable of, quote, having it all and women are not. Um, it's called division of labor in the household. And if you have a career that is high enough up the ladder like this, you pay people to do things. That's just the way it works. Everything in life is a give and take. Oh, Fritz, Fritz, I digress. So, later that night, we see JC at home, sitting in bed, starting to read. And Steve and her partner brings up the subject of a dog, to which JC responds, you know, I'm not really great with living things. After cutting out yet another potential vacation home in Vermont from the real estate ads, we see JC be awakened in the middle of the night by a phone call regarding her cousin Andrew, who lives in London. It's a bad connection, and all she hears is that he and his wife were killed in an accident, and he left her something in his will. Unable to understand what the woman is saying on the phone, she agrees to meet a Mrs. Atwood at JFK the following day, unsure as to what Mrs. Atwood is bringing for her. 
at the arrival gate for TWA. Oh, nostalgia. Anyone remember Transworld Airlines and their red and white livery on their planes? Fabulous. Um, we see Mrs. Atwood as she disembarks the plane. Uh, just a note here. <laughs> In 1987, when we still had TWA, side note here, um, TWA was in existence from 1930 until 2001 when it was purchased by American Airlines. Um, so in 1987, it was not like it is now, um, where, you know, take off your shoes, no liquids, all of this. No, 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 no. When you had a, if you were flying out and a family member was dropping you off at the airport, they could park the car, walk in with you, sit at the gate till you boarded, stand there, watch your plane, taxi, you know, leave the gate, taxi down the runway, take off, and then they could go home. If they were picking you up from the airport, they would most likely come and sit at the gate. They would tell you the arrival gate everywhere through the airport. So then you would go sit at the gate and wait. And as soon as they disembarked from the plane, you would meet them right then and there. Yeah, that doesn't happen anymore. There was none of this like, meet me by the luggage carousel thing. Uh, no. But then again, it was also the time before anybody really had wheels on their luggage and you had to carry it by the handle like some sort of Neanderthal. Yeah. And as a side note, the luggage that I had had been my mom's and it was kind of the family luggage and it was this hard-sided, almost lime green Samsonite luggage. And I remember as a kid being petrified when I would like close the little flap locks that I was going to get my fingers smashed in there and my sister and I would have to take turns somebody always had to sit on top of the luggage after you put it on the floor to keep it closed and you would slam the locks closed that was some scary ass luggage Samsonite what were you doing good god and also this was a time when everybody checked their luggage because you know they didn't charge you an arm and a leg to check your luggage it was considered normal Okay, so now I'm off on an airline tangent. But all I'm saying is it was different times, kids. Different times. So JC, you know, dispenses with the quick pleasantries of Mrs. Atwood. She says, hey, I've got a lunch meeting in 30 minutes, so if I could just sign for whatever you have to, you know, give me whatever I inherited. She's informed that she has inherited Elizabeth, her cousin's daughter, who Mrs. Atwood is carrying on her hip and looks to be about... I don't know, 14 months old. And Mrs. Atwood tells her, you're the only person who can take Elizabeth. JC tries to protest and she says, I am not the right person. And Mrs. Atwood says, ma'am, you are the only person. So then we see JC heading out to the curb, dragging the baby and the baby's luggage and diaper bag. And she drags her into a lunch meeting and as she struggles to make it in on time, she bribes the coat check girl to watch Elizabeth. <laughs> and she's dragging this poor little baby and throwing her around like she's a sack of potatoes. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh, but it is kind of funny. She makes her meeting, but of course, right on cue, Elizabeth begins crying and it echoes through the restaurant. So as she's attempting to woo the CEO of a huge account, the food chain, everything begins to unravel. Um, 
it's interesting that JC has this little quirk when she's nervous, her legs shake. So every <laughs> Fritz commented when they went out to dinner together, the food tank guy comments, what's that noise? Because they can hear her foot tapping under the table whenever she gets nervous. That's like her tell. So after the meeting, she schleps Elizabeth off to the grocery store for diapers. And she realizes that the boxes go by weight. Yes, kids, this is back. Diapers didn't always come shrink-wrapped in plastic. They used to come in a big cardboard box. And also, I mean, if you look at the diapers when she pulls them out, they were much, much thicker back in the late 80s. Huggies, Pampers, Loves, you name it, disposable diapers. One diaper then was about the thickness folded up, taken out of the package, was like the thickness of two diapers now. Different time, kids, different time. So she tosses Elizabeth in the produce scale to find out how much she weighs. <laughs> and then they finally decide on a box of diapers. So then that night we see JC and Stephen now who has come home and found out JC is stuck with this baby um, struggling to deal with caring for one little baby um, until morning when JC can contact whomever to help find suitable adoptive parents. So being the yuppies that they are they strap the baby with a belt to the kitchen chair and give her linguine with red sauce of which she throws all over the kitchen and makes a massive mess and we see poor JC still in her suit, blouse, and skirt. At least the heels are off and the suit jacket is off. But she's on her hands and knees cleaning the kitchen. The baby's still strapped to the chair. And she has a bottle of, like, Fantastic and a handful of paper towels. And she's squirt, 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 wipe, wipe. She works her way over to the baby and just squirts Elizabeth's arm, wipes her arm down also. That may be the moment that JC begins to be a mom. <laughs> yes, I'm laughing. I realize now that practically every mom on the planet would rather die than spray fantastic with chemicals on their kid, but it was the 80s. So we then cut to the obligatory terrible with diaper scene. And after JC destroys roughly 10 diapers, she finally uses black electrical tape to hold the diaper on. So the next morning we see JC filling out adoption papers and the social worker tells her, don't feel guilty. JC then denies that she has any guilt, um, which is very much like the thou doth protest too much. And then takes Elizabeth immediately to FAO Schwartz, buys a ton of toys and $1,700 worth of clothes. $1,700 worth of clothes. This is the late 80s kids, don't forget. That evening, in her new silk pajamas, Elizabeth is sneezing and has a fever. Um, Stephen is not there, by the way. So JC looks up symptoms and orders a bunch of baby items to be delivered. Baby Tylenol, baby cough medicine, a humidifier, a vaporizer, nose drops, and a bottle of Valium. This is all noted by the guy who's delivering all of these items, the delivery guy. I was like, oh, JC tells him the Valium is for herself. I must say, you go girl, she's using like Postmates and stuff 30 years ago before Postmates was even a thing. 
We then see J.C. walking the floors all night, attempting to comfort the sick Elizabeth, and reading through her Dr. Spock baby book as a Bible to guide her through. One more little glimpse of her becoming a mother. So the next morning, J.C. gets a call from the adoption agency. Suitable parents have been found, and could she please bring Elizabeth in? So at 10 o'clock, she heads in, and we meet Mr. and Mrs. White, who ask, are you sure there's no chance that we can't get a male? What? The husband just asks if she has all of her shots and asks his wife if she's okay with the baby, to which the wife responds, yes, sir. Oh, super creepy. I mean, it sounds like they're buying a horse or cattle or a puppy or something, and she calls her husband, sir. Wow. They then tell JC they're heading back to Duluth, Minnesota next week and are naming the baby Fern after Merle's mama. Poor Elizabeth starts to cry after being handed to her new parents. And JC walks out of the county building a few minutes later holding Elizabeth. And we see her again laden with bags, but she's much more competent with juggling it all. And she looks at Elizabeth and says, just don't expect too much, okay? To which Elizabeth responds, okay, and claps. (laughs) So yeah, that was the third piece. Did you hear it click into place? She's officially a mom now. We then meet Stephen at the train. And J.C. is standing there holding Elizabeth, and she tells Stephen that she could see Elizabeth's future. It flashed before her eyes, and she was wearing frosted lipstick and a Dairy Queen uniform, and she just couldn't. She could not give her over to a woman who calls her husband sir. She just can't. And he says he just can't be a parent. And then we see the shared co-op apartment slowly cleared of half of everything until J.C. and Elizabeth are there alone with half of the furniture. Back in the halls of J.C.'s office, we see Fritz and another partner, Everett, and he asks if they have any other woman partners. Fritz responds, oh, in the Chicago office, and Everett says, oh, yeah, that redhead. How nice is it they can't be bothered to commit to learning her name? Would they call a male partner, oh, yeah, that redhead guy? Ugh, the misogyny. So then... As they enter the office to discuss their future partnership, Elizabeth is there, and unfortunately, J.C.'s assistant, Charlotte, is nowhere to be found. After throwing her bottle on the floor three times, J.C. pulls Elizabeth out into the hall and says, This is the single most important moment of my entire career. If you do not put this bottle back in your mouth this very second, you're going to find yourself in the next Greyhound to Duluth. Uh, hilarious, because Elizabeth takes it and puts it in her mouth without another word. <laughs> And Greyhound buses are still around. Um, It's a bus service, which is an easy way to travel from city to city. But I don't think that they have that many routes anymore. Back in the late 80s, it was still a big thing. So then we see nanny interviews that commence that evening. And they go through the entire gamut of applicants. There are some problematic stereotypes here again. 80s. I feel like I need one of those little wooden paddles like they give you at an auction so I can just keep holding it up that says 80s to remind us that this is why some of these things are there. Um, From a stereotypical stern German nanny to a woman who is wearing a burqa, hijab, and niqab who tells JC that she will teach her daughter to quote properly respect a man. 
okay, that's not stereotypical at all. Oh my god. Um, then we see Eve, who is a fairly naive student from Mandrake Falls. Stereotypical small town girl, even down to the hair kind of in pigtails. Uh, don't quote me, but I'm fairly sure she's the granddaughter of Rose Nyland from the Golden Girls. Yeah. Extra points if you got that reference. So we begin with Eve, and she goes quickly because, well, <laughs> JC comes home from work, and Eve has brought home a guy she met at the park. Um, so then nanny number two, enter nanny number two, Helga. She is the stoic German nanny who will be taking Elizabeth for a brisk three-mile walk every day. JC then walks into a late morning meeting, and that evening, Fritz tells her he is moving Kenny up. Remember Kenny? Like, very intro to the movie. He was the guy that I said looked like he had just graduated from college oh, yesterday. Um, so Kenny's being moved up, and he will be her first lieutenant on the food chain. You could tell JC is less than thrilled, but she swallows it and moves on. At the park, as Elizabeth is playing, JC's working, and she overhears the other mothers discussing their children and their activities. She inquires about, you know, what they're doing and the ages, and she is informed that if her child is not on a waiting list for preschool, she can forget about it. They do decide that the Center for Brighter Babies, um, where the point is to teach children the facts of life, might be something that she can do. Parents spend their afternoon showing children flashcards of photos, such as the Republic of Botswana, doorknob, and I guess this repetitive is supposed to, like, drill it into them. Um, we see them swinging on rings, and we see that this is the way that JC's life now is. It's a new day for her. She was once the one walking down the street passing other slower walkers, and she's now the one being passed as she pushes Elizabeth in the stroller. And it's interesting how quickly and how happily she has slowed down. We then see Ken attempting to take over JC's office as she struggles to juggle a demanding career and the new demands of motherhood. As Ken begins to take over more responsibilities, JC decides to leave the company. She heads home and pulls out the real estate listings from Vermont that she was, you know, diligently clipping from the magazines. And she calls on the one that has been her favorite for a long time. And she purchases a 62-acre estate in Vermont and a brand new car or Jeep SUV. It looked like a Jeep Cherokee, you know, with the wood-paneled sides. Love it. So she and Elizabeth sell everything in New York and head to Vermont, where they own a home, orchards, and a barn, where J.C. tells Elizabeth they can be just like the farmer in the Dell. Um, I also have to give kudos to production for putting Elizabeth in a car seat um, in the late 80s. They were still like hit or miss, but kudos to them. And from what I could see, she was properly in the car seat, so mm -hmm. credit where credit's due. So we see JC and Elizabeth arrive at their new home, and they're thrilled at what they find, a huge home, a barn with cows to be milked, a pond, a boat, an apple orchard, 
with more apples than the two of them will ever hope to eat. As they snuggle in bed, we see JC read a very progressive bedtime story where the princess thanks the prince for kissing and waking her because she almost overslept and she has medical school in the morning and is going to be a very important doctor one day like all women can be. I love that. That was very 2019 of JC. They then made a date to meet after graduation, she says. Very progressive. <laughs> she then notices it's cold and the radiator's not working. So cue the plumber who tells her the pipes are corroded and it's going to be a cold winter. He quotes her seven dollars to $8,000 for repairs. And yep, he's the only plumber in town. Of course, once the pipes are fixed, the snow starts. And yes, it's even in the house because the house needs a whole new roof. So why wouldn't it be snowing in the entryway? So finally, snug and cozy at home with the snow piled up outside, a fire in the kitchen hearth, we see an obscene amount of applesauce that JC is making. We see that the winter blues are kind of setting in. She's a little isolated more so than what she was when she was working in the city every day. And JC goes to turn on the kitchen sink one evening and nothing but bursts of air come out of the pipes. And of course, she's informed her well has run dry and she needs to tap into the county line that's three miles down the road. Poor JC has hit her breaking point and she just passes out. She awakens to a Dr. Cooper and in tears tells him she is ill-equipped to make it in this environment. She says she wanted to slow down and she just cries her heart out and tells him she is so lonely and then all of a sudden, she hears a horse whinny. She asks him what that sound is. And he states, oh, it's my next patient. He is a vet. And she loses it. She starts yelling at him that he swindled her because he's not a real doctor. She then finally calms down and goes to talk to the real estate agent and finds out that the house was for sale for five years and she was the only nipple. She then heads across to the general store and ends up selling them some of her homemade baby applesauce. And then who would walk in the door but yuppies on vacation from New York, of course, who are just charmed by the bucolic setting in the general store. They discover the baby applesauce and remark on how great it is that someone finally got into making gourmet baby food. This is all JC needs to hear and she heads to the library to begin her research on consumers and the marketplace. So she realizes she has found an untapped market, and now she has something to kind of pull her out of the doldrums and really fuel her and make her feel like she has a purpose again other than just being Elizabeth's mom. Of course, the vet notices her in the library and asks her to join him for a cup of coffee, and she says she doesn't drink coffee. I love how snarky JC is. <laughs> and then we see her heading home late at night down the dark and snowy road. She gets a flat tire and who should come and pull over to help her? But our dear friend, Dr. Cooper, the veterinarian. She continues to change the tire on her own, tells him she's not going to swoon every time he says hello, so don't flatter himself. She is a tough, cold career woman who has nothing in common with a country vet. She then calls him Dr. Charm, and he kisses her and leaves, and leaves her to change her tire on her own. 
So then we cue the fabulous 80s montage of JC and Elizabeth traveling state to state to sell the newly branded country baby applesauce to country stores, all of which refuse. Undeterred, we finally see a local sale on a table in a town square and moms with babies on their hips flocking to JC like she's selling Girl Scout cookies in the off season. We then see JC offering to send a store owner their catalog for more orders. Is this potentially her entry back into the workforce and back into the game? Maybe. We then see that Country Baby now has a production facility courtesy of JC's barn, and we see catalogs being stuffed into every mailbox, new products being shipped, and babies eating Country Baby in cities like Chicago, St. Louis, San Francisco, and really all across the country. JC runs it all from her home office while also tending to Elizabeth, and we see newspaper articles written on her Um, based on her success and the profits that are soaring. So it seems like she has definitely found her niche. We then see she and Elizabeth um, posing for promotional shots as the mother-daughter of the burgeoning empire of baby food. We then see a town dance, and everyone in town is mingling and enjoying the onset of spring, including Dr. Charm, (laughs) Dr. Cooper, the town vet, Um, I have to say, I love the late 80s fashion, too. Um, And so much of it is starting to come back. The plaid shirts for men and ties and fuller skirts for women. Like the, I'll never forget the blouse tucked in to a long skirt with a big, wide belt. You'll see a few of those at this dance. So as Dr. Cooper holds Elizabeth, we see JC struck at what a cute picture they present. But she soon pulled to the dance floor by Dr. Cooper as they slow dance to Moonlight in Vermont. Um, that song was first published in 1944 and is considered the unofficial state song of the state of Vermont. The song does not rhyme, but rather it's written in the form of a haiku. It's actually a really interesting song. I kind of like it. So Sam, Dr. Charm, our vet friend, ends up going home with JC. And the next morning, as they awaken in the bucolic splendor of Vermont, J.C. receives a phone call. Oh, it's Fritz. She is shocked to hear from him, but she's also excited at his request for a meeting this afternoon. It seems Food Chain wants to purchase Country Baby. Oh. But then Dr. Charm asks, is Country Baby for sale? J.C. says she's not sure, but the thought of moving back to New York City is big. As JC emerges back in New York, she appears exhilarated and she really looks like she's thrilled to be back. One gets the sense that she's proud to come back on these terms after making such a success of herself. You know, it seemed like she left um, because she felt she had nothing else that she could do and felt like she was a little forced out. But now she's coming back on top and it's they who are seeking her. So it must feel really good. Everett, the skeptical partner, meets her with a teddy bear and asks how Elizabeth is. Ken, of course, tries to butter up JC by whispering, she looks terrific. And Fritz congratulates her on her great, great success. Oh my God, I hope she can sit down and her ass is okay after all of that kissing. So the CEO of Food Chain goes on to compliment JC on finding an untapped market in food and said she's working with a small team and antiquated facilities 
and they can make it go further. Now I'm not the CEO of Food Chain, but I really don't think a way to court somebody is by telling them they have a small team with antiquated facilities and we can do it better. Just saying. So of course we need to give a nod to the 80s decor in this conference room. The linear artwork on the walls, the vertical blinds, like the lighter colors, wow. Super 80s, I love it. So once again, I remind you, this is 1987. They offered JC $3 million cash. They want her to stay on with a base salary of $350,000 a year, yearly bonuses. And with that, they're offering close to $1 million a year in salary alone. Again, I say this was 1987. They also offered to purchase her an apartment in the city and give her use of the company jet. One caveat, they want to move production to Cleveland. JC then excuses herself to think this through. She heads to the bathroom and just tells herself in the mirror she's excited the Tiger Lady's back. As she walks back to the conference room, you see her slow her gait, and you can tell she's kind of turning this over in her head. She re-enters the conference room and tells them thank you, but she's going to pass. No to everything. No, Country Baby is not for sale. She isn't the Tiger Lady anymore. She has a crib in her office, and she likes it. She doesn't want to make the types of sacrifices that Fritz spoke about long ago on their dinner together. She says no one should have to choose. And if Food Chain can put Country Baby on every supermarket shelf, so can she. The rat race is going to have to survive with one less rat. And she walks out. On her return to Hadleyville, Vermont, she tells the good veterinarian she is not leaving town. They kiss, and then we see her return home to Elizabeth, who she finds in the front room playing on a small rug, looks up as JC enters the room and exclaims, Mama! They sit together and rock in the rocking chair, and we see the picture of a woman who has it all, her career, on her own terms in the way that she needs it to be, her daughter, and a relationship with a man who treats her as an equal and respects her career, her daughter. And she also has 65 acres in Vermont. So that was one of, in my opinion, the best movies of 1987, Baby Boom, with Diane Keaton. So, Hopefully, I have inspired you to go check out Baby Boom or maybe rewatch if you have seen it already. Um, send me an email if you have any suggestions uh, on ways to improve the show or any other movies or TV that I should be watching and reviewing. Um, it is Retro Cinema Review on all of the platforms. Email is retrocinemareviewpod at gmail.com. Find us on all of the platforms. Um, rate and review on Apple Podcasts. And I am Scarlett, and I will see you next time for another movie or TV review. And until then, if you don't have anything nice to say, come sit next to me. Bye.